0: Hey, this is Liz Kelly, and welcome to The Ringer Podcast Network. Up on TheRinger.com this week, we've posted our streaming recommendations for the month of September, updated our 50 Best Superhero Movies of All Time list, and make sure to check out our Stephen King coverage by Ben Lindbergh on the site and on the Big Picture Podcast. On the sports side, our NFL experts are giving their predictions for the season, the storylines they're most excited about, and finalizing their rankings of the top 150 fantasy players of 2019. You can check it out on TheRinger.com. Welcome to the Dave Chang Show, part of the Ringer Podcast Network. As always, thank you to Yola Tango for letting us use their great song, Pass the Hatchet. This week, we have Chef Brooks Heedley, a superiority burger, one of my favorite chefs of all time. And for years, I've just thought he's one of the great chefs of our time, not just pastry chefs. Truly one of my favorite people in this culinary industry and someone that does it the right way. And if you haven't had his food before, go check it out in the East Village. It's a beloved cult institution now. And there's just, there's nothing like it. And when I talk to him, it really reminds me of how Momofuku started out in 2004. But he's just his own person doing his own thing. And man, if you didn't get a chance to taste his desserts at Del Posto, it just gives you an idea of what he was able to do. Someone that is open minded and continuously. Desiring to learn more about his craft and his profession, and man, that guy just knows how to make great food, and he's one of the best people out there. So check out his restaurant, buy his cookbook, and in the podcast, I talk about people copying him. and We've had a lot of people, like his good friend Jessica Coslow, and just a variety of other chefs we've had on this podcast, and copying is necessity to becoming your own voice and your own chef. But I continue to say people copy the wrong things, whether it be Rene Redzepi or Brooks Heedley, You can copy them all you want, but I don't think you should copy the recipes. I think you should copy their philosophies and how they approach the culinary profession with integrity and uh, the right attitude. And these people are inspirational to me. And that's what I try to copy. So here's my conversation with Brooks Heedley, one of my favorite people out there and not just one of the best pastry chefs, which he's won a James Beard Award and a bunch of accolades. He's one of the best chefs out there. In fact, I think he was nominated in New York for Best Chef in New York City in the Beard Awards. Take it the Beard Awards for however you want with a grain of salt. But here's my conversation with Brooks Headley of Superiority Burger. You've done a bunch of podcasts before, right? A couple? Yeah, yeah I've done a few. <laughs> So welcome, Brooks. Excited to have you on. Uh, I'm psyched to be here. That's cool. <laughs> so I don't even understand how to talk about no, Not that no, I don't understand how to talk about it, but like your life is so interesting. You have arguably the most beloved restaurant in New York City. And I mean <laughs> that. And I don't know if you love compliments, but it's the restaurant that everyone wants to go to when they're from out of town. It's a restaurant when people from New York leave New York most of the most. <laughs> and what, what is it about what you've done at Superiority that people love so much? And I never sort of wax poetic about any chefs that we have on, but you have something so singular and different that I think if you haven't visited it, you may not resonate or you may not understand.
1: Um, I mean, we just have a little tiny weird restaurant in the East Village with Six to nine seats, depending on how much people want to squash themselves together. And it's the first thing that I've, that's ever been my own thing. Like I've always worked for other people up until four years ago. Cause we've been open about four years now. And I don't know. I've just been basically going like full throttle, like since day one. And I don't really have any plans on stopping, even though it's just this one tiny little place. So
0: P. Wells gave you. A two star review. And did that change business at all?
1: Oh, yeah. 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 I mean, that was in, that was about four years ago that that review came out, which was a pretty crazy review because, you know, we got two stars and we don't have a bathroom. We don't sell any alcohol. Um, we don't sell any meat and there's no place to sit. So that was pretty, it was pretty wild. Um, yeah. I mean, it, it was, there was an instant change in business from that, but the place is so. Strange and small that. What's so
0: strange about it? Because I, I've never started off a podcast with a chef talking about their restaurant, but you have something that I wish people would emulate more, not copy your food, <laughs> but emulate more of what you've done. And there are a lot of cooks and aspiring chefs that listen to this. And I think this is the thing that maybe I don't want them to copy your recipes, but they should copy your philosophy.
1: Um, I mean, I just think it's cool. Like, I mean, I spent a long time working for other people in big, fancy restaurants, or not even necessarily big restaurants, but, you know, like kind of high-end restaurants. So learned a ton about cooking that I wouldn't have, I definitely wouldn't have learned otherwise. But when we opened up Superiority Burger, the kind of the goal was like, what if we kind of do the same kind of cooking, but make it as cheap as possible and as accessible as possible? well accessible is not <laughs> totally the case since this place is really tiny mm. and i mean the tininess of it kind of is kind of part of what it is you know which absolutely drives me crazy a thousand times a day the the lack of space you know but i've grown to love the constrictions that that puts on me and puts on like the rest of the cooks working at the place and even the people just like taking the orders of the register, you know, like having this like tiny little space with a bunch of people squashed into it is kind of fun.
0: Can you elaborate a little bit about the constraints? Because when you talk about it or I've read about it, it gives me all sorts of good feelings, but also nostalgia of pain too, because (laughs) (laughs) you've worked at a lot of huge restaurants. I mean, huge, relatively speaking, but space was never really an issue, particularly let's say like Del Posto, right? Like,
1: Oh yeah, sure. I mean, like we had, I could do things at Del Posto as a pastry chef that weren't necessarily like particularly complex in terms of what ended up on the plate. But I was able to do things because I had, you know, a walk-in freezer. The thing about that's great about the space of Del Posto is just there's flat surfaces everywhere, which if anyone knows working in a small kitchen, like having flat areas to put stuff is always kind of a... You're just constantly looking for that. In fact, to the point where like you'll put something down and then move it for half a second and someone will immediately put something down right in that space because there's such a, everybody wants that like flat area, you know? So
0: you think that friction is just vital to the heart and soul of your restaurant because it creates a kind of creativity you could never get in the confines of comfort.
1: Yeah. I mean, to a certain extent, the smallness and the tightness Definitely helps like agitate you to kind of like, if this is all I got, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go crazy with this. And I really enjoy it when I have someone, a cook, come to work at the restaurant and they get it too. And then after, say, a couple of weeks or a couple of months or however long it takes them to kind of get acclimated to the fact that we're all cr- a bunch of people crammed into this tiny space. Or they're like, oh, okay, now this is what I'm gonna do. And I'm gonna chop these things up and then I'm gonna throw them in a bag and and stuff them in the top of this cooler and then see what I can do tomorrow when I can get more space to finish it up, you know. Like so the uh the the yeah, the creativity and the and the tightness is definitely like they're definitely tied together.
0: So. I had a journalist tell me once the creative aspect of operating in a tiny space, that's a lot like the whole trend of tiny homes, you know, and I was like. No, I I don't think that's anything like it because um, you're creating something that's sort of permanent in a tiny home. And this is, there's just constant variables changing. Every day is different, particularly your restaurant that has seasonality and just every day is different. It has a heartbeat. I love it. I love having tiny spaces. I also hate it because of the same thing. But what I've learned is, when you talked about getting someone else that's new that understands it, I love it because they immediately tell me that they're open to something and they're not bringing in their sort of past experiences and trying to impose it on something that's sure, completely sure, new. Sure, sure, of course. How do you get someone to understand that in a normal restaurant space? Um, I mean because that's, that's the key. I think that if you can unlock what you're doing, do you really need a small space to see the
1: way you see now? I mean, there's lots of restaurants that have small kitchens. Like, that's not any we're not unique in that sense, but the scope and ambition of what you're trying to execute. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Well, that's, I mean, that's, that's the thing. And, you know, I will have people come work at the restaurant. Um, and we, because, because we're vegetarian, mostly vegan, because it's this weird, strange, small restaurant. Um, we tend to get a lot of people with no experience at all, like literally zero restaurant experience. And with the right attitude, that kind of person I can actually like bring in and after a certain amount of time, like get them, say, in a few weeks or a few months or what however long it takes that particular person, get them to start alaminute seasoning, broccoli rob salads, you know, which is a really cool thing to watch. Doesn't always work. Um when it does work, it's great. But it's also like when somebody really that has maybe has a little bit of restaurant experience comes in and what I feel that we do at the restaurant, in this between myself and my my business partners and Cheryl, our our manager, who basically does everything. She works the line, she seasons salads, she shapes burgers. She also does the schedule. She also is the HR person. Like, it's kind of the coolest restaurant manager that I've ever worked with. You know, so it's 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 fun to see people like kind of a uh, attack the situation and. I think what we do is we foster this really creative environment there where anyone can kind of do almost anything. And the people that really, really get it and want to cook a bunch of food and come to the market with me three or four times a week during the summer or even in the winter, we'll go to the market too, you know, and like pick up some stuff and then talk about it. And like, how can we turn this into a salad? that makes sense and feels like superiority burger. Cause we don't really have a theme. It's not an Italian restaurant. It's not an Asian restaurant. It's this vegetarian restaurant that's pretty focused on like using the best quality products we can get our hands on at the same time. Like I have no problem with, you know, certain commodity things too. Like I, I think I like the the tension of having both. So,
0: And how many square feet is it?
1: Um, the actual restaurant itself is 275 square feet. That includes our basement, which doesn't have any running water, so we can't do any prep down there. It's pretty small anyway. Like if anyone – if we set up a prep table down there, it would be really depressing. So basically, we have uh four induction burners that we inherited, which have all since been re- re- replaced and refigured. Um, we have a 36-inch griddle um, where all of the, the – burgers that we make get cooked and also almost everything else too um, and then we have a still oven below the griddle that is one of those restaurant still ovens that's either like <laughs> off or a thousand degrees there's nothing in between so there's only a few things we can cook in there Like, um, and then we have a very tiny convection oven that only takes half sheet trays that has uh, five racks and then in terms of like firepower, that's it, which is, isn't is a lot, but we have figured out a way to make it work. We just finally replaced the convection oven a couple months ago, and it was the most thrilling thing to see the old one just get the fuck out of the restaurant. And But the problem was that we, it was such a small amount of space that we had to deal with that we had to get the exact same oven. So when we're at the store on the Bowery, because we needed it fast, because the oven died, we had focaccia that we needed to bake on Friday. Like we couldn't not have that. So we had to like get an oven as fast as possible. So we're at the place on Bowery and this, and the guy's like, Oh, don't get that oven. That oven sucks. And I'm like, well, that's the only one that'll fit in this space. You know, so
0: is it also used as a prep table? <laughs> uh,
1: no, it's actually, it's actually tall. It's like kind of at eye level. So I've actually had some, uh, incidents where pulling things out of the oven and splashing on your arm or, you know, it's, it's we basically utilize every single quadrant of the space, you know, so.
0: You said something earlier and described, I don't know, do you still think of yourself as a pastry chef?
1: Oh, because, 100%. Totally. Still. Yeah. I make, I made ice cream until three in the morning last night, so.
0: I love coming to Dev Hosto because of your desserts. Um, I would tell everyone I knew, I think that you were the best chef right? I don't even think about pastry chef. Like You need to be considered (laughs) as being one of the best chefs in the country because no one was thinking about the things that you were doing. And it was so hard to then just make pastries and baked goods with the original thought that you put into it. Somehow, I don't know how to articulate it, but if you tasted and looked at your desserts, particularly after the years of making desserts at before you left Del, Del Posto, I was like, this is like this is as like good as it's ever been, and I put it in the same conversation as Sam, and then Claudia Fleming. Right? You're like in my.
1: I mean, those are those are two of my idols for sure in terms I, of cooking. And you, you, and I both of those people, Sam Mason and Claudia Fleming, I consider them both chefs rather than pastry chefs for sure. And Claudia uh, was the
0: first person to start to like think like a savory chef too, and integrate those ingredients. And I was, you know, obviously I had tasted your your pop up burgers and i was like of course it's delicious N- anything you've done i've never been like i was never surprised do you think people were surprised at your tra- transition number 1
1: um i mean well yeah cuz when you ask me if i still can, if i consider myself a pastry chef cuz i actually i'll get that question a lot like people will say well, don't you miss making desserts and i have to say like well we i make desserts every day so <laughs> i definitely don't miss it you know um but in terms of like the like the transition from cooking only Desserts and then moving over to, to my own place at Superiority Burger and then doing all sorts of savory stuff. Like from, to me, it, I always kind of looked at things in a similar way. So even though I wasn't professionally cooking, you know, making, creating salads or, or sandwiches or anything like that, like to me, it was just a, a very smooth transition to do that. And maybe it was like, a jolt of creativity too. Cause now I could do things that I couldn't necessarily do before, you know?
0: And when you made that transition again, I remember privately, I think I'm one of your biggest fans. People are like, is this uh, possible? And I'm always shocked at how little some journalists know about the transition of people that were pastry chefs to savory chefs. Sure. And yeah. you worked in Washington, DC, Michelle Richard, rest in peace. Like he started off as a pastry chef. Of course. Yeah. And the ingenuity he had in his dishes we're very clear that like, I'd almost recommend you should be a pastry chef first <laughs> and then roll into the savory because it teaches you control and finesse in ways that I don't think I could have ever learned without like learning it later in life. And it's something that I still suck at comparatively, but it's just so funny how things might be different now moving forward. I think that you're going to see a lot more cooks try to learn what you learn first. I hope so.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's cool. I mean, I I don't in any way I wouldn't change any of my progression as a cook the way I did it. I think it was, it was kind of perfect for, for me, like starting out working as a pastry cook and in different places. And kind of like when I started the first restaurant where I worked, I had, I was brought on with zero experience. So that's, that's kind of why I'll do that to people or do that for people at superiority burgers, because I was in that position once too. And even though I, had like cooked with my grandmother, cooked with my mom or something. I'd never done it professionally. So if you have the right attitude, um, if you're willing to kind of just go for the gusto, then maybe you can learn how to be a cook in a restaurant, you know? So, cause that's what happened to me. And like, I loved it immediately. And I'm always kind of looking for that person who doesn't have any experience, but like, is the kind of person that will go home and just like sit on the internet for hours, like researching things or go to the library and get a bunch of books. So it doesn't have to be a thing that like costs you money. It doesn't, you don't have to like go stage in Europe or something like there's ways to like learn and kind of develop as a, as a cook without culinary school, without with doing things that are like inexpensive to do. So, And like last time
0: I'll blow smoke up your ass. It's like, I always study Albert Adria because I feel like his career is underrecognized in comparison to his older brother. But having worked with him in a variety of different places and, and events and stuff like that, I've always studied everything he's ever done. And I was always comparing, do we have anyone like that in America? And I think he is the greatest sort of creator cook ever. Just sure. think he's yeah, the yeah, fucking yeah. baddest ass. I mean student.
1: that that uh, his cook when did his cook his first cookbook the first came out? cookbook like, came out late nineties.
0: The first one's impossible to find now.
1: Yeah, but that's what lost Poster is. Yeah,
0: Cause like he's the benchmark for the the reason why I very much respect you to the highest level of like a Albert is because you do something without really having the I don't know if it's the care. You're not trying to have yourself understood. You're not, you know what I mean? You're not communicating to everyone. Albert doesn't give a fuck. He doesn't care. He doesn't care if everyone says, oh, this is Fran. He doesn't care if people are like, you're just a patient chef. He wants the challenge. He wants to create himself. Uh, he wants to create the best food possible, but it's just an expression of who he is and he's not beholden to anything. And that freedom to me is what you have in your restaurant and what you've done in your career. It's like, no one's ever said you have to do this. You're like, You never explain yourself as much as you could. And that's what I always see as a similarity besides you guys both being like just prodigiously talented. It's your ability to express yourself or lack thereof sometimes that I I think is the most respectable thing for me. Because everyone, including myself, is always trying to fucking explain themselves. And you're like, whatever. It is what it is.
1: (laughs) Um, We'll get that a lot at the restaurant, like people will say, because Superiority Burger is a vegetarian restaurant. But because of our spatial limitations, it's almost all vegan. But at the same time, I'm not willing to make it totally vegan because I don't want to have a vegan restaurant or I don't feel the need to like put it into like a category, you know. So sometimes people say, well, it's almost all it's like 99 percent vegan. Why don't you just make it totally vegan? And my response to that is usually just silence because I don't even want to have to try to explain that, you know. I mean, part of that is like, you know, I I made ice cream and gelato with dairy for 18 years. And I'm still, I haven't totally figured out a vegan version of that. That's as good as the dairy version I can make. So I'm always going to have a dairy gelato because that's, I know how to do that. I know. And like trying to do a vegan version of a gelato, which we've had tons of success and, and failures of like things that are good. And then they're good for a while. And then we fuck them up again and we can't make them anymore because the, one of those things where like you come up with something and then it's great. And then you lose the ability to make it, which is actually one of the things that I really enjoy too, because why, why can't I cook the rice like that anymore? Why does that starch based ice cream not work the same way? Like even last night, we're at the restaurant till you know two thirty three in the morning. Like, why is the blackberry sorbet coming out icy when we did everything exactly the same? Like, I, I get off on that, even though it sucks because you know it takes more time and takes more, therefore, money to like figure it out or whatever. But uh I like—I don't know—I just like the what's
0: what's driving you on that curiosity because I can't. If you asked me that; I wouldn't be able to fucking tell you that. So, I don't.
1: <laughs> um. I don't know. I think it's just that. And I'm always, I'm so excited to go to work every day. Like I moved to the East village about two years ago. So I live like a four minute walk to the restaurant. So there, there are times when months will go by where I, I go nowhere except my apartment to sleep, the restaurant, and then union square to go to the market. And I'm fine with that. Like, um, and I'm so every single day, I'm so excited to go in because it's, it's number one, it's my thing. It's not anyone else's thing and I can do whatever I want. Like one of the things that always kind of bum me out working at fancy restaurants is having like a selection of ice creams and sorbets. So you have, let's say you have four gelatos and four sorbets. And what if no one orders them? What do you do? What happens to them then? You know, um, And if you're going to spend so much time sourcing tri-star strawberries from Rick Bishop and pureeing them and carting them back from the market and turning them into this beautiful sorbet that is somehow tastes more like a strawberry than the actual strawberry you started with, like that's like that act in sorbet making is one of the things I just love totally because it doesn't make any sense. Like you're taking something that's perfect, watering it down, adding sugar to it, reincorporating acid, maybe adding some salt. And it tastes better than the thing you started with. Like, that's just the coolest thing in the world, you know? So, and I just love, love, love the creativity of that. And then also just like getting a bunch of stuff at the market and being like, all right, we have a vegetarian hamburger restaurant, which is kind of stupid. And then, but instead of having French fries, we're going to make all these different vegetable sides. Um, And it still cracks me up to this day because people will come in three, four, five, six. 10 times a day, especially on Saturday or Sunday and, and kind of get mad at me. Like, why don't you have fries? Why don't you have fries? You know, it's like, it's like, we're, we're making all this other crazy stuff. Like you can get, I can tell you somewhere to get fries and it's not like, I don't have a problem with French fries. I love French fries. I mean, who doesn't, you know, but I don't have a deep fryer, so I'm not going to make them. And also we're just doing this other thing instead, you know, but the excitement of actually going to work is so strong and it's still strong. And we're, we're talking four years in, um, to me, it's like I'm sort of waiting, like, when is it not going to be exciting anymore? And it's been four years, and it still is. So,
0: so, But there are moments where you hate
1: it, though, right? You just love it more than you hate it. Sure. I mean, of course, there are moments when, you know, the dishwasher doesn't work. The oven dies five minutes before we're supposed to have 28 sheets of focaccia in the oven. Um, and it, those situations, like someone's working there who decides that they— are gonna mope and pout the whole day, not for any particular reason, like things like that. Where like all of a sudden it's like, oh, this, oh, this, this is such a, th- I'm having so much fun. Like, why is this stuff happening? Y- yeah, you you kind of hate it for the moment, but you work around it, you make it work. So you know.
0: So like hearing this out, I've never thought because I live in a world of comparing everything to anyone, either it's sports, music, or other chefs, and. I always pepper other chefs with these questions because I always want to know a little bit more. And the chef that I really admire the most uh, is Pascal Bobo in Paris at Nostrance, mm-hmm. And it is a 27-seat restaurant. It got demoted recently from three stars to two stars, which I think is completely stupid. But when I ask Pascal, it's like, how do you do this? Because the kitchen literally is two triangle burners. It's like the size of a school desk. Mm-hmm. Two cooks. And he's got a pass that is maybe, you know, half a sheet of paper. And that's where plates are being plated. And every table gets its own menu. And in the morning, from talking to people that work there throughout the years, he'll wake up at like five in the morning, go to the market, purchase it, drop it back off at the restaurant, go back to bed. And then he's going to expect his two cooks to mise en place out, uh, just clean it and prep it out to how they how they think he might want it. And then that's how the menu gets created for the day. Mm -hmm. It's that drive that makes him love work.
1: Sure. yeah, So
0: much that he can't stop thinking about anything else. And I also see the the downsides of it too, because he wants to do other stuff still, but he doesn't know how it's a little bit of fear. It's also a little bit of out of his comfort zone. And also he's like, he's being forced by other people to like, well, you got to open to more restaurants now. And he's like, I don't want to. Now, if I don't, am I going to be punished? And it's this shitty, vicious cycle that I feel like not just he's in, but like, I'm sure you've gotten a ton of opportunities and a lot of people asking, hey, how do you do more? And now you're fucking up the very thing you want to do the most and going back to Pascal. I am so angry. The fact that he's given his life to this restaurant and said no to everything. Mm-hmm. And the Michelin guide said, we're taking a star away.
1: Right, right, Fuck right. That. Yeah, no, that's, that's fucked up. And he's as
0: <laughs> as the, as the epitome of integrity in this profession as you can find. Right. And I see someone like you, and I feel like you're a real fucking artist in the best possible way. And, like, I'm putting you in this pantheon of people that I admire tremendously. And I wish you all the happiness because there's very few people like you in this business. And I wish more and more people, again, would copy your philosophy. How do you navigate your future then? Because…
1: Is your body breaking down at all? I feel pretty solid right now, so no arthritis, um, no nothing. No, every once in a while there'll be like a weird, a weird like ankle pain or like something like that. But uh, you know, I try to take somewhat care of myself. So, um, but I just I enjoy working. Like if I go on a trip that's like supposed to be kind of a vacation, like I mean, I'm I'll always try to figure out some way to do something food-related or whatever, even if it's, like, a small thing at a friend's restaurant or whatever. You
0: just did that in Copenhagen.
1: Yeah, 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 No, it was amazing, too. And I actually talked to Rocio about it, too, because she said the same thing. Like, I was like, when are you going to be back in the U.S.? And she's like, oh, I think I'm coming back in, a, in like, a month or so. And I was like, oh, that's cool. And she's – and was basically like, yeah, I'm in, I'm doing a bunch of pop-ups in Chicago or, you know, so – which I immediately was like, oh, of course, you know, that's what I would do, too, so. But what I love is,
0: like, I get – uh, you text me and you're like, Hey man, I finally made a it Copenhagen. It's fucking awesome. And I did this and this, and it's very palpable reading your text. Like you love this. You love it so much that that's what you want to do. And I, maybe I've lost that love and feeling a little bit because I keep on having to open up these restaurants. When younger cooks talk to me, I'm like, how do I tell them to find what you found? How did you find this?
1: Because it's the most infectious thing. Um, I don't know. I'm not sure. I mean, I- it just, things just kind of worked out in this sense where I found a couple of friends that had just enough money for us to secure a lease and get just enough equipment to open up a place. Like, I mean, in retrospect, there's a lot of things we didn't think about. Like the fact that how do you operate a six-seat restaurant in 10-degree weather without like a, you know, one of those
0: right, awning things. Yeah, yeah things,
1: you know, so... Which we couldn't necessarily afford, and also like it would. I think the people on the on the block would get pissed at us too. But things like that, or like, how do you make money when there's only six seats? How do you make money when you're selling everything for under ten dollars? Like, and then I come in with like, oh, I'm gonna buy the best possible produce that I can get at the market. I'm gonna buy the the best possible canned tomatoes that I can get from the italian purveyor that's the most expensive stuff but it's the most delicious and and then still sell it for like basically as little as possible you know um it just kind of worked out um the burger that we sell is pretty inexpensive to make and that's the thing we sell the most of so it kind of floats the other crazy stuff that doesn't make any sense like like this week you know campo Rosso at the market has tomatoes so i bought you know something like 14 flats of tomatoes to the point where like they laugh at me when I go pick the stuff up because they're like, number one, where are you going to put this? And number two, like, what are you going to sell this for? How are you going to make your money back on this? You know, but it's somehow kind of worked out. We also don't use any meat. So obviously like protein is a huge expense for restaurants, as you know, Um, and we're avoiding that entirely. Also, we don't even use any eggs because number one, like, we don't have a fridge that's, or a walk-in to take a case of eggs, you know? And when we first opened up, we did use eggs to bind the burgers and we used um, eggs in gelato bases. But one of the things, and this is cool too, that I found out that like when you open up a vegetarian restaurant, which is what we did, you kind of open up a vegan restaurant because you can't have, you can't not have options for vegans. Vegans, yeah. so. And that's fine. So it sort of like mutated into this thing where like I, maybe in the, in initially I would have used more cheese or more, more dairy. And then we figured kind of figured out ways around it basically because we didn't have enough refrigerator space to have two of everything, you know? So, but I like, I kind of like that too. Like to the point where we've like, we have over the course of a few years now figured out this fermented cashew yogurt that we make. That is a, Absolute VitaPrep destroyer, you know, like it's kills the VitaPrep. We burn through them. But this stuff, when it's inoculated and left to ferment, we basically have this like blank slate of a yogurt slash cream cheese slash mild cheese that's tangy and delicious is almost identical once it gets seasoned up and can be used for all sorts of different things. And like, we never would have figured that out if we were just using getting dairy from our dry goods purveyor, you know, so.
0: I, again, I'm having a lot of flashbacks at the old Nutavar and almost all the things that we still cook today are based because we couldn't have the
1: the space to cook anything, right? Right, right, How are you
0: supposed to cook all this stuff when you're not supposed to? (laughs)
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I like that. And I mean, that does happen at Superiority Burger a lot where someone will come on, maybe as a cook, maybe as a person who wraps burgers, maybe as a person who works the register, and they won't realize how kind of crazy the whole situation can get. Um, and then they occasionally will leave kind of abruptly because they're just like, I cannot deal with this. And it's not a bad environment to work in. It's just very intense. And there's just a lot of stuff going on at all times. Like
0: When I had, I don't remember where I had your, your first security burger burger. How many versions? And when I tasted it, I was like, this is the end game. I mean, you won. That's what I felt like pretty strongly, and I still feel that way now. But I want to tell this story simply because it gives, I think, an insight into who you are if people haven't figured it out by now. How many versions of the burger have you made now after what? Now, What you've been making the burger longer.
1: Six years now? Yeah, probably about years six in? years, yeah.
0: How many versions now?
1: Um. Start with Version 1, now, yeah. what do you think you're at now? Uh, maybe 10, 11, something like that. Um, it's kind of, like, steadied in the past few years. Like, we don't, we don't mess with it as much. But, you know, the original version had Faro. Um, the, the original version had Faro. It was basically, like, stuff that I found in the Del Posto dry storage area. So, the original <laughs> version had Faro. It also had 24-month-aged parm in it, you know, <laughs> that I, like, turned into a Frico in the pan. And that was kind of an integral – that became kind of an integral flavor component on it, which when we opened up the restaurant, I was like, all right, I I definitely can't order wheels of of two-year-old parm to grind up and put in these burgers. So I think we switched and, like, bought, like, bags of, like, more, like, commodity kind of Parmesan kind of thing, you know, and it just wasn't the same. So we just eliminated that thing completely, you know. Um, but, yeah, it's gone in different stages. We used to use eggs to bind it. JJ Basil worked with us for a while, one of my favorite people. And he uh, basically, I was like, we can't, I can't use eggs anymore. What are we going to use to bind these now? And, like, you know, he gave me, like, a laundry list of different things. And the thing that ended up working the best was just straight up potato starch.
0: That's, um, like, the perfect JJ
1: Like, like nothing. Because like, I was like, well, maybe some methylcellulose. We do this and this and that. And he's like, just use potato starch. Actually, the first the first thing he suggested, and this was even before Superiority Burger opened, when I would just text him, like I was like, I need something to bind the vegan one because I was still using eggs. And he's like, he's like, do this: boil some potatoes and put them in a roboku and just put it on high and make disgusting paste. Like everything they tell you not to do when you're making mashed potatoes, you know. He's like, do that, and you'll make this glue. And then incorporate that in, and I bet that will bind them together. And that was cool because, like, it would—it was so disgusting. Like, it was just this slime, slime, you know. And then I was like, I, I was like, it's a little—it just feels a little weird. And like, I feel like I can still taste it, even though I probably couldn't sense it. You know, it's just—it was so such a strange matter to put in this, you know, like basically like vegetarian meatloaf that we had made. You know, so and then we eventually settled on the potato starch because that. Work the best. It's easy. You know, we get non-modified potato starch from Bob's Red Mill. It's all good. So,
0: Before we go on, let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. Today's Dave Chang show is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Hiring used to be hard, multiple job sites, stacks of resumes, a confusing review process. But today, hiring can be easy and you only have to go to one place to get it done. ZipRecruiter.com Chang. ZipRecruiter sends your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards, but they don't stop there. With their powerful matching technology, ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job. As applications come in, ZipRecruiter analyzes each one and spotlights the top candidates so you never miss a great match. We at Momofuku have had great success at finding top quality candidates. ZipRecruiter is so effective that four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. And right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash Chang. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash Chang, C-H-A-N-G. ZipRecruiter.com slash Chang. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Today's show is also brought to you by Adams Shoes. Adams are the ideal everyday shoe and the world's first shoe to come in quarter sizes. Because 60% of people have one foot bigger than the other, Adams lets you get a different size for your left and right foot. Adams sends you three pairs of shoes in quarter size increments. You only pay for one pair, then you pick up the individual left and right shoe that fits you best. Adams shoes are unisex and have a simple design that accents your personal style. The custom foam in the Adams Model Zero is extremely comfortable, and the antimicrobial copper lining prevents odor, plus they offer free shipping and free returns. If you see me wearing around some white kicks in the city, they're the sickest shoes I've had in a long time, they're incredibly comfortable, it really feels wonderful, and most importantly, my left foot is actually a quarter inch smaller than my right foot. And. I couldn't believe that there's a shoe that actually fits both feet as perfectly as they do. It's a brilliant concept. I highly recommend it. And most importantly, they look great and they're incredibly comfortable. They're my new favorite shoe. So to try the world's first shoes to come in quarter sizes, go to Adams.com Chang. That's Adams.com Chang, C-H-A-N-G. Adams will send you three pairs of their incredibly comfortable shoes so you can pick the left and right shoe that fits best. When you order at adams.com slash chang, they even include a free pair of socks. So if you want to wear their ideal everyday shoe, go to adams.com slash chang. Adams is awesome. And now, back to the show. Do you feel that, I mean, I know you've been just crushed with music, food, comparisons forever. It's not exactly what I want to get to, but... Is the same artistry that drew you to being in a band? Is that very similar to being in the position you're at now of um
1: It's different. It's pretty different. They're pretty different parts of my life. Like, you know, I still play music, not nearly as much as I used to, like, but I have a friend Mick that I play with here. We we practice every Thursday at a pay by the hour place in Times Square. We do the 10 a.m. to noon shift, which is the least Rock and roll time to have band practice ever, you know, but it's good because I get it done with and then I can go, I can go to work, you know. So, um, they're just very different things for me. Like in terms of like the creativity of like playing drums and cooking, like maybe at times I've tried to like make connections in between the two, but they're, they're just, they're pretty different, you know, like,
0: yeah, well, no, I like, for instance, like, um, Aaron Franklin played mm-hmm. drums and I, I think that he would agree that. We talked about it on this podcast. If he didn't play music, he probably wouldn't be as successful as a chef. It's there's something that unlocks in your brain somehow, some way. And I find that the more and more chefs that I'm drawn to and I admire, they're not the ones that just I went to the CIA, age 17. I worked at all these fancy restaurants and this is all they've ever done. They have nothing to say. And I wonder if one reason why we don't know how to talk about it, at least in the culinary perspective, is because no one's ever looked at it as a way of actually becoming a chef, is that the last thing you should do is only cook.
1: Right. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I I don't know. It's, it's. uh, I mean, everyone has their own path to get into it. And, you know.
0: But no, everyone can get into cooking. That's easy. But to get to the level where you're at, to have autonomy and the ability to construct incredibly original dishes. And if you just saw a photo of it, you may not understand that it is a life's work to make it as what it looks like and how it's presented and as delicious as it is. But I think what I'm struggling to find is when I see what you do and how you do it and everything you stand for, I think unequivocally it's because you've had other interests. Ironically enough, it's cooking is all you do really now, but more and more chefs that I wonder and I admire uh, and I'm sorry, it's blanking on me other than Aaron Franklin, just because he was also in music. Right. Food wasn't their first passion. It was all these other things. And they still are their passions. And somehow there's this overlap that I think allows them to create dishes in their head or, like, have an idea of where they want to be. Because, ironically, that's all they do now is cook, but their mind is still somewhere else.
1: Right, right. And they have, like, a there's a balance in their brains from, like, what they and did, I think when people before, say you're
0: crazy or you think you're crazy, it's simply because people can't understand all the life experiences you've had in the past that now sort of translate into your present day.
1: For, yeah, for sure. I mean, that definitely, 100%, that's part of it. Um, it's hard to like kind of pin down to like a certain thing like that. This caused this, you know?
0: And there will never be another brook simply because no one's had your life experiences. And maybe some people have had, I'm sure, but no one's decided it you know what? I'm going to go work at this fancy restaurant in DC. And then I'm going to go work for maybe the most high-end Italian restaurant that's ever been made. And then I'm going to open up a vegetarian burger shop in the East village in 295 square feet. Right. <laughs> and that's the philosophy. I feel like people need a copy is like, whether it's you or Renee or even Coslo, I see these people that feel like everyone can do it. Right. But they try to copy you. I've seen ever since you made your recipe, your your cookbook, which you should buy if you are a home cook or a professional cook, because it's fucking packed with, it's like you and uh, Jeremy Fox's book and Cosmo's book. I was like, well, you just gave everyone, (laughs) everyone your life's like work. And I've seen those three books really sort of trickle out into recipes throughout the country. And people copy you guys, whether that's flattering or not. Well, that's not for you to sure, discuss. Yeah, yeah. But like, how do you tell people like, don't copy me, copy how I think, how i live my life?
1: Um, well, I think that's a, yeah. I mean, I actually like, I mean, and this is definitely related to like a music thing. Like when I was in like a functioning band and playing drums, I would say I ripped off every single fill and riff that I ever did. Like it can be like immediately like this is a bottle surfer song, this is a pylon song, this is you know, um, and I hadn't have a problem with that because to me it was just like taking these things and then like squashing them back together and like putting it with some music that sounds nothing like those two two bands or whatever. So, so in terms of like if superiority burger was to be ripped off somewhere else in the world or the country, I would actually think it's kind of cool. Like I would be, <laughs> I, I'd, I'd be kind of into it, you know. So because. I know that like you can't like our restaurant as it exists, like can't be totally copied because it's such a specific thing. You know, it's kind of like having finally gone to Noma a couple of weeks ago, only having read about it on the internet and, and cookbooks and stuff like that. One of the things that was like the most telling to me when I left to walk back to the place where I was staying is that, it's almost strange that people rip off Noma so much because it's unripoffable. Yeah, absolutely, it's such a specific thing, you know. Like, and not that I'm comparing Superiority Burger to Noma or whatever, but it's like because they're very, very different, of course, you know. But like having a thing that is very specifically a person or a group of people, people's vision, you know, like as a thing, you know, like I think it's like you can't really rip it off, you know. I mean, you can take little bits of it, but it's not going to be the same. So
0: So if you're okay with people copying you and maybe making a facsimile of your restaurant somewhere in the world, and we've talked about this here or then, but like over the past few years, the the question I get from a lot of other of our peer group Mm. friends is like, hey, what do I do next, Mm. right? And what I love most about this business is the fact that we can have someone like you create something beautiful out of something that most people would never think about doing. And it enriches New York city and the culinary landscape at large truly does. My concern always is we're like the second generation. That's going to see the first generation of chefs and their careers. And this is where I do think it's similar to, to music because I am friends with some musicians that have been quite successful, Mm -hmm. but they're not like millionaires. They've right. What do they do when they can't do it anymore? And that's what I, I don't want to see anyone I know or care about do what they love and then have nothing to show for it at the end.
1: Right. No. Yeah. That's, that's, a, that's something to think about. For it's sure. a shitty
0: thing to think about, but I think about it a lot more and more because I see this next generation, the people that I work for, the people that you work for coming to the twilight of their careers. And no one's ever prepared this generation for what that looks like. And I don't know what that looks like. And then let's just say you don't have anything on the horizon to open another superiority burger. Maybe you do, maybe you don't. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Right? But let's just say you do and you want to open up a couple more in -hmm. places that are going to be amazing. I have a couple places that I could imagine it be fucking unbelievably successful with great products, right? I think Japan would fucking just it's maybe the perfect place for your mindset and the Shokunin sort of, I got to do this shit. I got to make it fucking better. I got to ask myself why did it turn out this way versus the other way it did yesterday. You know, California produces next level, all these things. How do you do that? Because this is the fucking thing that no one's really ever answered in their stupid fucking business. What happens when you grow, not just as a person, but now as a business. And that's something I've been wrestling with, for forever. And I don't have an answer.
1: Yeah. I mean, that no, that terrifies me because I think about that all the time because we have so many awesome regulars that come to the restaurant. I mean, it's crazy. We have people that come every day or almost every day or people that people that come so much that we know them to the point that we invite them to our holiday parties, you know, and It's good too, because it means that like, if we have someone like that, that's coming all the time, they're coming because they can kind of like get something new every once in a while, or maybe every time. And that's kind of my barometer. Like if I have a couple of different regulars or one of my business partners and his girlfriend, when they come in, like if they're coming constantly, if I can have something even slightly new for them, then I feel like I'm still kind of pushing and like haven't like started like resting on my laurels or whatever, you know? So, so that's like a, that's a cool thing. But at the same time, I know for a fact that almost to the point where I can like write it as a script. Like if we were to get a bigger space and close down this location and have a bigger space with say, it doesn't even have to be huge. What if it had 20 seats instead of six seats, which a 20 seat restaurant is not very big. um, the script I've written in my head is that everyone's saying like, Oh, it's not as good. Uh, it was so much cooler when it was just like this fucked up little thing. And we had to eat outside in the snow. But then if that person is eating outside in the snow, they're probably like, fuck this. I don't, we should go somewhere. We can sit down where we can take our parents where we can like four of us can come at once, you know? So, so that like the tension of that, like people want the comfort of a real restaurant. But at the same time, kind of like this, like, fucked up version of a restaurant, which I like, too, because that's part of the thing that makes it so fun for me. But at the same time, like, yeah, what happens? What happens if there's a bigger one? And all of a sudden, it's just a different vibe or people say that it's just not as good, even if, like, I can say, like, but I've got more flat space. I've got a walk-in freezer. It's better. It's totally better. We just tweaked the burger, like. It's definitely better. I, I guarantee it's better. And they're like, ah, you know, it was just like, it was, it was, it was different when it was, when it was small, you know, so I think about that a lot. So
0: I thought about that a lot as I open up basically shopping malls now, right? And I have my own takes on this and I, I, I can talk about it a variety of different ways. But if I stayed in noodle bar 2004, maybe we'd have three mission stars. Maybe we'd be number one restaurant in the world or whatever, but that was not my path. It is what it was. And to this day, everyone's still, oh, it's not what it (laughs) is anymore. And I'm like, you're right. It's not. And it may be worse for you. But what I've really internalized, and maybe I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, is your valuable customers, the people that give you fucking life. They really do. To see that joy you give them. It's amazing.
1: It's like, It's, it's the best thing in the world. It's the
0: best, makes it the best part of the fucking job. I would argue that that is also what's going to keep you stuck in nostalgia. And and prevent you from growing as a person. And that same curiosity that you just explained about why this sorbet or why this gelato is not the same as it was yesterday. At some point, you're going to have all those angles in that perspective, and you're going to know why. And then when you stop asking yourself that, you're not going to grow anymore. And. Because I've lived and I've thought about this shit so much. Then the same people, they're going to grow and maybe they're not going to see the same things that they saw before. And you're fucked. You're damned if you do and damned if you don't.
1: That's true. And
0: the only thing I'd ever thought of is, well, I'm not going to let someone else determine what that fucking perspective looks like. Right? And I'm all support. Like, if you decide to open it up, I'm going to be like, yeah, fuck, yeah, he should. And it's not about just making more money or whatever. It's just like, he's exhausted his creative resources and he needs to do something else. We should be supporting you to grow. And I think partly is that hopefully we can talk about this on this podcast and other media outlets and food can be like, actually, we can't do what we normally do and say, oh, he shouldn't grow. It's the right, dumbest right. fucking thing I've ever heard of.
1: Yeah. No, it's, it's, it's,
0: it's why should you be challenged and feel guilt ridden of like, and if I decide to do something I want to do, which is why I do what I do to do what I want to do, why should I be punished for fear that people may not like it? It's the dumbest fucking contract <laughs> I've ever heard of.
1: well, the thing that like you know on a similar line that cracks me up a lot is that I mean, I spend a lot of time at the restaurant. i mean it's it's my thing. it's what I do. you know, so if I need to go to the market really early in the morning and then do a bunch of other stuff, and then all of a sudden it's service lunch service we're open straight through so we're open from eleven thirty a.m all the way to 10 p.m that we don't close in the middle it's just like a straight thing so um also like sometimes we need to spin ice cream after service or start making stuff after service just because there's a lack of space so you were
0: making cakes at three in the morning yeah night, exactly right, right. I mean, It was just after fine.
1: 12 hours of service. which is fine i don't have a problem with that but it, it so I, I i'm known as being the the crazy person who wears the exact same outfit every day and is in the restaurant scooping ice cream i'm just always there you know but it's funny then like if if i go away for a couple of days or if i have band practice in the morning and i miss a couple hours or whatever um a regular or maybe like a not so regular will come in and the next time they see me and they go oh good to see you. I haven't seen you here in a while. Last, I haven't seen you the last couple of times. And I'm always like, what are you saying? I'm taking too much time off, you know? And they're like, no, 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 that's not what I mean. That's not what I mean. But it's kind of funny. That, like that's the first thing they say. There's like, so when it is this weird, crazy, tiny little space where I'm always there, the times that I'm not there, like the people that I, that I actually love that come here all the time. The first thing they say is like, Oh, but you weren't here the other day, you know? So, which I, you know, I just turned into a joke because it's, you know, like obviously can't be there every single second of every day. Although if there was a way I would, I mean, the other thing about a restaurant and if you haven't been to superiority burger is it's like, you see everything. Like it's just one big room. Like there's a counter, but two feet away from that, there's someone wrapping burgers or somebody on the griddle. Like it's all right there, you know, when, the health department shows up, they can be all the way to the back of the restaurant in five seconds. You know, like there's no like, there's no like airlocks to like, of this place. Like it's all on display. Like everything is on display. Um, so I think part of that is like, because people see, they see me always there. They see certain people like the, like Christina, who's worked the register for almost four years, like we're just there. Like it's almost like, I, I always try to explain it to new cooks or or people coming on. It's like we're putting on a show, you know. Like, yeah. And this isn't like, this isn't like a tasting menu kind of restaurant. But it's the same way where like everything, like everything that a customer says, we can hear. Everything we say, they can hear. It's all like one big amoeba of just like people in this room. It's just like some of us are cooking the food and. The other people are eating the food, you know, so.
0: So what happens if one of your employees that's been with you four years and then let's say it's another eight years later, they're like, hey, Brooks, like, I want to open up in my hometown of Sacramento. Mm -hmm. And there's a great opportunity and we can do something that's the embodiment of what we're doing. What do you do? Because. I'm asking you because I'd love your insight. That's the challenge that I've always had is ultimately then it's never about myself anymore. At some point it always becomes about everyone else that's around you. Sure, and all yeah, you want to yeah. do is provide. I think that's what we are in this business. Of course. Give. Yeah, yeah. How do you explain that to someone else? It's like, Hey, why are you going up, up in there? Or like, well, we can make more money so we can get healthcare or we're making up more money so we can provide this and this for these people. I'm really fed up with everyone thinking that it's always about like just blind capitalistic growth, but it's not
1: sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. i mean, i even will even get we'll even get that at at superiority Burger, which is which, if anyone knows anything about restaurants, is clearly not raking in the dough, you know, like <laughs> everything is nine dollars and under, you know, but you're if, trying hard not to make money, <laughs> doing my best, doing my best for four years, still working, still working, <laughs> so you know, like you know, knock on wood, um, but like. I mean, it's tiny too. And that, you know, like if there are 10 people in the restaurant, six people sitting, four people standing, it looks busy, even though that's only 10 people, like 10 people in a normal restaurant, normal, a normal sized 30 seat, 40 seat restaurant is like, oh shit, we we have to close the restaurant because there's no one fucking here, you know? And then if there's even a couple more people, And we have this thing, we have focaccia, we have this special dessert, we have this tofu sandwich where like.
0: It's just so good. It's
1: a specific special thing that we're only doing on one day. So people like line up, you know, but if there's eight people in line, then eighth person has to be outside because there's not enough room in the restaurant for there to be a line of seven people. So all of a sudden it's like, Oh, your restaurant is slammed constantly. You must be rich, you know, which is which is kind of funny. And that's like, you're not
0: selling alcohol.
1: Yeah. We know alcohol. We do not sell alcohol. Like we're selling salads. We're selling, we're selling very high end salads and veggie burgers, you know? So, but it is, it is a very funny thing where even like people in the neighborhood and the, the people that live on ninth street are so amazing. It's, it's, we have the coolest bunch of folks that live on, on the street. Like, Nancy, who lives across the street, she's lived there since like 1977, like Mary, who, who has lived there probably just as long. And, you know, just people, and they love a restaurant. And it's so awesome because like when we first opened up, people on the block were like, are you going to sell alcohol? Is this going to be a bar? What are you doing here? You know, and. I kind of explained it's like, no, it's, this is a vegetarian restaurant. You know, there's not a lot of seats. So there'll definitely be people hanging out outside, but you know, nobody's going to be drunk. It's going to be like (laughs) kind of like very polite people sitting on planters, eating radicchio, you know, it's not, if anything, it's going to be like good for the block rather than like a bad thing, you know? So we've really like a, a lot of the people that live on the block have given us like tons of support in that sense. So it's pretty, pretty fucking cool. So
0: Well, whatever you wind up going to, I I wish you nothing but the best because like, I know you have a ton of opportunities and it's remarkable that you can be as focused as you are in doing what you're doing. And I wish you to have all the freedoms that you want because man, I know a lot of people would love to have your food in their cities. So however that happens, or if it doesn't happen, that's a whole nother conversation because I don't, I don't have any fucking answers on that, but
1: uh, I mean, just, you know, Los Angeles. Just the produce alone that the Santa Monica market and the Hollywood market, like (laughs) it's (laughs) it's so insane. And in November, you know, there's two springs. It's (laughs) yeah. No, I mean, I spend as much time as I can visiting LA and just basically hanging out at the market. So
0: I just laugh whenever we go to the market because there's markets everywhere, not just Santa Monica. They're everywhere. Hollywood, Pasadena. Yeah. Every pocket of LA essentially has a farmer's market. And I actually laugh out loud whenever I taste stuff because I'm just like, this is no, a joke. No, it's pretty
1: crazy. I mean, I, I, I lived in LA 2003 to 2005, worked at, um, I worked at Campanile and I learned a lot there, especially like with my first restaurant jobs. You know, we went to the farmer's market. We got really good peaches from Pennsylvania, did canning, stuff like that. But when I worked at Campanile, you know, we were getting stuff like straight from the market and, you know, Wednesdays would be like, we have to come up with a menu based on stuff we're getting that isn't doesn't have anything to do with the menu that was on yesterday, you know. So and I'd never experienced like, you know, I'd only had Driscoll's strawberries and raspberries. I'd never had like raspberries like you can get at those markets in California where you're just like, this is insane, or Persian mulberries or things that can't get shipped to the East Coast because they won't survive, you know? Just dates. <laughs> the dates, the dates the, That's dates all gotta from, a the idea taste ever the dates from Palm Springs in Arizona. It's
0: like, how yeah. is this possible?
1: Yeah, like I, I didn't know date. I thought dates were just kind of whatever, you know. But yeah, like specifically at Campanile, I learned like, like we didn't have specific recipes to make a sorbet base. It was just like the way that Dahlia and Nancy would describe things, like, you know, who knows how much sugar is in this fruit that we're using? You can't have 343 grams of dextrose and 427 grams of organic sugar. And that's always going to work because who knows the sugar content because of the sun or the rain or whatever, you know? So being able to like adapt to that and like look at something as simple as like a blackberry or a red currant sorbet or something and be able to look at it and not think of it in like finite terms of gram measurements and how can we make this as delicious as possible while at the same time making it perfectly smooth and because the th- whole thing with sorbet is it's all about texture you know so.
0: man what some i mean shit i just want to get back to LA right now <laughs> um one more thing and i think it's a good way to sort of end on um I don't know if people are still confused uh, because people may not even know your previous career and that's completely fine. But to get out of fine dining, and I think that a lot of things get lost when people say, uh, why do you work at such a fancy restaurant? And I've always said, because it's not because I want to e- eat there would be nice. It's not because I want to feed these people. Like when I worked at Cafe Balloon, like I fucking hate the Upper Side. I don't want to feed these people. Mm-hmm. Um, Some of them are great. Right, But I'm just going to learn the best techniques. For sure. Yeah, Where else am I going to learn how to make these terrines and to dress a chicken this way or whatever and to fabricate all these beautiful things that I wasn't going to learn anywhere else? Where else am I going to learn how to cook a chicken in a pig's bladder or shit like that? It's just like, wow, this is where I have to learn. Right. And it can only come across as sounding pretentious to some of my friends. They're like, dude you only want to make food for fancy people. I'm like
1: fuck. <laughs> yeah, I mean I have a I have a very um complicated relationship with fine dining restaurants obviously. But yeah, I don't I don't regret any second of working at any of the places where I worked because I even like at Del Posto, you know, I worked there. I was hired as the pastry chef. So I wasn't like I was like going to learn anything new, although of course I did because you learn from every single person who comes to work at the restaurant, you know, like I wanted to work at Del Poso because I wanted to work for Mark Ladner. Like I wanted to see how he did things. And even though I wasn't cooking pasta, I wasn't making pasta. I wasn't like making stocks. Like Just being in that environment, I learned so much that wasn't even part of my job, you know, and that is something that I can't recommend enough for people that just really want to learn as much as possible. It's like, go find a restaurant and work there and don't just stay with blinders on in your station, figure out a way to learn stuff that no one's even teaching you because that's totally possible. You know, and and especially at a restaurant where the the level of cooking is so high, like you can do that, you know.
0: And the dining room may have no bearing or influence at all as to who the kitchen is and what they believe in. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I don't know if a lot of people quite understand that. And I think that's changing because of restaurants like superiority. And I said this with Coslo too, when I just feel like she's just one of the best chefs out there. And she may not get the credit she deserves simply because she's making food that people want to fucking eat and sure. made with love and the same kind of fucking excellence and uh, getting the same product as any of the best restaurants in Los Angeles. And yet there's something in the perception that people are like, Oh, it can't be as good as this fancy restaurant over here on Santa Monica.
1: Right,
0: And that kind of ignorance bothers the shit out of me. And when people talk about the best chefs in New York, and congrats on the Beard nominations, all that shit, whether that means something or not, and you've already won Beard Best Pastry Chef, I still feel like the next level, we have all this talent in the world, in America specifically, they just may may not be the traditional sort of hallmarks of how a chef was in the past. And I look at what you've done and what you're going to continue to do, and I'm like, you need to be in conversation because you deserve it with your Dedication to the culinary arts, whether it's savory or not, what you've done out of a tiny, tiny, you know, postage stamp of a space is as remarkable and as important to what we do, like as any three mission star restaurant. And I want more people to understand that. I don't know if you really think about that or care, whatever, but I think that's what I want more people to follow is what you've done because that's the only way food's going to change is it's not going to be on porcelain china with a fucking sommelier like food's got to get better everywhere else and then if i'm a young cook i'm working for a guy like you because where else am i going to learn how to think like you so uh i wish you all the success man because i i just i watch everything you do from afar with total admiration genuinely because i just think you get a ton of praise i just don't think it's enough
1: (laughs) <laughs> this is plenty
0: this <laughs> <laughs> all right man we'll get you right. out of here thank you well that was my conversation with Brooks uh, I could have talked to him for hours and hours and uh, he gave me a one of his uh, focaccias with tomato and fuck it was so good It really is good. Like, God damn it. Brooks is just, everything he makes is something you want to eat. And to find your own voice, to do it as distinctly as Brooks has done. I just don't know if he gets enough credit to make a kind of food, vegetarian, or vegan with sandwiches and salads and gelato and all these things, right. That are really well known already. And to put a distinct voice behind it is almost damn impossible. And, To his credit, I don't know if he gets enough credit for doing that and really admire him. And he's one of my heroes. So thank you, Brooks, for coming on to this podcast. Thanks for listening, guys. Thanks again to Brooks. Uh, Stay tuned next week. Give us five stars on iTunes. Give us some great comments. And however you rate this podcast on Stitcher or Spotify. Thank you so much, guys.